Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. And thanks to Harry's for supporting The Motley Fool. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner, and this week I'm joined by a guest and a friend, Nick Epley. He's a social psychologist. I'm looking forward to sharing Nick and his insights with you over the next half hour or so. Without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to Rule Breakers Investing. I'm joined by an author, a social psychologist, and recently a friend of mine, Nick Epley. Nick is the John T. Keller Professor of Behavioral Science at the University of Chicago's Business School, which is the Booth School of Business. He's written for the New York Times, published over 50 articles, two dozen journals in his field. He was named a professor to watch by the Financial Times, and the list goes on of his acclaim. I would have loved to have had Nick as a professor, but I did have a good opportunity to spend some time learning from him last year on my JCOC trip, about which I did a podcast or two. Nick, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. What a pleasure! You know, you begin your book "Why We Miss Well, Actually, let's start right there. So, your most <laughs> recent book, Nick. Um, I have the paperback edition. You kindly signed me a copy. Thank you very much. And the subtitle of the book, "Mindwise," is the title, but the subtitle "Why We Misunderstand What Others Think, Believe, Feel, and Want." And when I went back to look up the book a little bit more, I noticed that there was a change, I believe, in the subtitle of the book, a subtle one. Is there anything to that? What was the hardcover subtitle? So, the hardcover subtitle was How We Understand What Others Think, Believe, Feel, and Want. And the subtitle for the paperback is Why We Misunderstand. So, uh, publishers have all kinds of theories about titles and uh, what's likely to catch people's eyes and and what's not. And publishers believe, at least they told me, that positive titles sell. And so they wanted a subtitle that was positive for the hardcover, which is how we understand. So that was the positive one. But um, the book the book is about that. That is it it does I do talk a lot about the psychological processes that allow us to do what I think is actually the most remarkable thing that human beings do, which is they think about each other's minds. The I focused a lot on that, but what's really interesting, I think, in everyday life is how we misunderstand each other, the ways in which we make mistakes uh, in trying to step into another person's perspective. And so that really captures the the bulk of the words in the book are those missteps, the cases where we misunderstand each other. And so I actually think my my uh, my publisher was wise in, in publishing the paperback to suggest that we go with a subtitle that's a little closer to what I think readers mm. will take away from the book, and that is cases where we misunderstand each other, why that matters, and how we might be able to do better. And Nick, you begin the book by talking about what what you call our sixth sense, the everyday mind reading that we do is we try to infer what others are thinking, feeling, wanting, intending. 
And you write that the mistakes that we make trying to understand the minds of others are, and I quote, predictable and therefore correctable, end quote. What's the most common mistake that we're making when we try to understand what's going on in someone else's mind? So the most basic one that we make is, is that we're overconfident. And overconfidence is a phenomenon that you see in many, many domains. I'm sure you've talked to your readers and listeners uh, about this many, many times. You see overconfidence in knowledge almost everywhere you look. But you seem to see it uh, also uh, really fundamentally in the kinds of inferences that we make about each other. Another person's mind is just the most complicated thing you're ever going to reason about. Our brains contain about 100 billion neurons, uh, each of which is connected to between 1 and 10,000 other neurons. Uh, Just a stunning degree of complexity in our brains. And yet we reason about each other's minds almost as easily as we breathe. And whenever you get a situation like that where a judgment is really easy, but the reality of it is really hard, you're likely to get overconfidence. So I think that's the most common kind of general mistake that we that we make, because we just think we understand each other better than we actually do. Um, and then there are a number of other smaller mistakes that um, that kind of underlie that overconfidence. One of them is is that we tend to be egocentric when thinking about each uh, each other's minds. That is, we tend to assume that others think more like us than they than they actually do. So that's that's a pretty common one. As I picked up your book and I was thinking about it, Nick, I was thinking of the old, and you, you do actually reference this. I went, in fact, right to the index, the newlywed game. That, to me, is like a classic <laughs> incubator for Epley's work. You have two people who are newlyweds, and this is the way the old game with Bob Eubank. I, I'm sure it still replays on um, reruns. It might even have some modern incarnation, which I'm not keeping up with. But you know, you ask a question of one of the fiancés, and guessing what the other one thinks holds up a sign, and then the other one has already either agreed or disagreed. We find out if that person got it right or wrong. Did I know what he or she was thinking? Was I right? And I think, as you make clear in MindWise, it's not so much that we don't know. Maybe four and ten times, I think you say we do know. And the good news is, if you've been around somebody for one to six years, you know them better than if you hadn't been around them. So that's good to know. But it's as you just double underlined, it's when asked about the confidence that we have in making our guesses or predictions about the people around us. It is that that is the real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in fact, we did a we did an experiment where we're in the midst of. Uh, still in the midst of, uh, of publishing this work right now. It takes a long time to get these experiments published. But we, we've done a couple of big experiments, essentially, with people doing the newlywed game for science. Um, I agree that that was, uh, that was a, a, a game show, certainly, that sort of inspired our, our research. What we've done with this is we, um, we've, had, we've had married couples <clears throat> come into a laboratory that we have at the Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago, which turns out to be a great place to to run experiments with people. (laughs) People are curious and happy to participate. Um, And so we bring married couples into our lab there, and we have them predict each other's attitudes, almost exactly like they do on the newlywed game, but we're a little more careful in how we measure things. So we give people a list of 20 statements 
These include things like, you know, that are relevant to investing, such as uh, I often feel our family is too heavily in debt these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or things like um, I would rather spend a weekend in London than in Paris, kind of preference questions like that, a handful of other activity preferences. Um, So 20 different statements. And for each statement, (laughs) you're asked to say whether you disagree with that statement or agree with it on a scale that goes from minus three, indicating strongly disagree with that statement, to plus three, meaning that you strongly agree. Mm -hmm. And let's say that my wife and I are in this. We've been married for 20 years. Um, My wife would go through and answer all 20 of those statements or answer all 20 of those questions, and I would predict how my wife would respond on those uh, 20 questions. We can look at accuracy in a number of different ways, but one thing we can do that allows us to also measure uh, overconfidence is we can look at how many times do I guess my wife's response exactly correctly. That's kind of hard to do because there are seven different points on the scale that range from strongly disagree to strongly agree. So that's kind of a tricky measure. Mm -hmm. Um, But you will be happy to know that um, our married couples who are married on average um, uh, about 10 years did perform better than chance on this at (laughs) predicting their spouse's response exactly correctly. Chance would have been about three out of 20 correct, a little bit less than three. They got 4.6 out of 20 Mm. correct. So Mm. a little better than chance, or sorry, 4.9. So a little better than chance, not a lot better, but a little better. Um, But here's the interesting thing. We asked our married couples in the control condition, which is I'm describing to you right now, we asked them to say how many they thought they got exactly right. And they thought that they had gotten 12.6, right? Wow. when in fact they'd gotten 4.9, right? Mm. So they were a little better than chance, but they thought they were much, much better than chance. Now, what about like the plus or minus one? The within didn't get the exact plus one, but I did say zero. Um, yeah. Does that improve the numbers oh. and make us feel a little bit better about our relationships? For sure it does. Um, for sure it does. But I, But what's interesting, I mean, because essentially what you've done there is we've just made it easier for you to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or um, close. Ballpark, you know. Yeah, but so people, yeah, are in the ballpark. Um, but if we had also asked about confidence, my prediction is that confidence would have gone up if we made the the ability to be right easier as well. So mm-hmm. the gap, and this is the thing that's interesting to me as a psychologist, the gap between how well we did and how well we actually did could well stay the same. So instead of getting thinking you got 12 and a half right, you might now think you got 16 or 17 right. So my uh, one of my producers who's listening in, Macria, reports, by the way, that he watched the new newlywed game last night on YouTube. He even <laughs> included his own hashtag, uh, cry for help. Anyway, <laughs> so yes, it's it'll never end. Okay, let's stop you right there for a sec, Nick, because it's time to pay the piper. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, as many are today, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. You'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So, as we've said many times before in this podcast, skip the bank, 
Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. Nick, uh, what what's surprising? I'm going to quote you here, page 30 of the book. What's surprising is how easily introspection makes us feel like we know what's going on in our own heads, even when we don't. We simply have little awareness that we're spinning a story rather than reporting the facts." End quote. And the reason that that one jumped out to me is that storytelling is such a big thing. Um, in, it starts in our heads, stories. And of course, we all, we all go and watch movies to see what's going on in other people's heads and see their stories. And the call of the story is so powerful. And presumably, we're all telling ourselves stories all the time about what others think about us and what that person thinks of me versus that and what I think that they think of me. And it, 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 So, how overpoweringly powerful are stories for us and should they be? Well, um, I, I'm, not sure to, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure quite how to answer that question. I will tell you what, what I think is most interesting about the power of stories, at least from a psychologist's perspective regarding this research, um, it turns out that the kinds of stories that we tell about what's going on in other people's minds, so we see them do something, and then we explain what they're doing by appealing to their beliefs or their attitudes. You ate this sandwich because you liked that sandwich. You voted for this candidate because you have this and that background, this set of beliefs and attitudes. The stories that we tell and the processes that we go through to explain other people's behavior turns out to be the same kinds of processes that people go through to explain their own behavior. And that's what's really, I think, interesting hmm. uh, from a psychologist's perspective. That is, we don't have access to the actual neural workings of our brains. And so conscious experience is really trying to understand the world as we see it, including other people, but also ourselves. So, for instance, if you have people, uh, if you ask people, say, um, to write a, uh, an essay in favor of a position that they don't really believe. So we just asked you to do this just, just <laughs> for the purposes of the experiment. They later come to believe that they actually hold an opinion that's more consistent with the essay that they just wrote, um, even though, um, to begin with, they knew that it wasn't actually what they believed. Their attitudes shift in the direction of what they, they did. We do exactly the same thing when we're interpreting other people's behavior. So if I see you write an essay in favor of some position, I infer, well, you wrote that position because you believe it. Turns out people do the same kind of thing for themselves. And I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, so this one is veering away from the book and from a conversation I remember having with you last August. Um, I really appreciate it. It was a time, of course, of a lot of political interest. Not that people aren't just as interested in politics this month as they were then, but it was kind of pre-election. Lots of buzz happening in the air, and I—I I, uh, I don't think I, I shared this with you, but I'm extremely apolitical, so I, I don't—I try to stay out of it. I'm just not that interested in it. I, it doesn't—it's not how I think about the world, but. What you were saying at the time was that the right question to ask people at a at a cocktail party, let's say, if politics, God forbid, comes up, and that does happen quite a bit in Washington D.C. where I live, but it is, and I love this. You said, ask somebody what was the process by which you reached the political conclusion that you just 
expressed. There could be any conclusion. What was the process by which you reached that? That's such an interesting question, and it's so telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so because it uh, essentially what you want to what you often want to know is why does a per- person hold a particular belief that they do, and that's something that's often hard for us to really appreciate or understand. That's where we often miss. So if if I know that somebody voted for Donald Trump, for instance, then I will very quickly be able to come up with all kinds of plausible reasons, at least plausible to me, for why might somebody might do that. Um, those reasons, though, may have nothing to do with why they actually voted for that person, or at least what was going through their head, they think, when they were making this decision. And it's those reasons that are behind actions that we often have the hardest time inferring accurately when we see somebody doing something. And so if you really want to understand somebody, that's what you got to try to figure out. Sometimes we can report on that um, that accurately, sometimes we can't, but uh, asking people directly is probably a better way to understand them than than guessing. And don't you think that probably happens so much, especially in politics these days, where just instant assumptions are just short, our minds shortcut to instant assumptions about why this person thought that or voted that way? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't know that that's so new to to politics these days, <laughs> but certainly it happens a lot. That's sort of the way we reason about other people's behavior just as a on a day-to-day basis. We see somebody, for instance, as I said before, somebody eats a sandwich and we infer, infer oh, they must have liked it, otherwise they wouldn't have eaten it. Uh, we quite quickly and naturally go from behavior, observed actions, to something that's going on in people's mind. We do it so quickly and so easily. That's where we get such big overconfidence. And I think in cases like politics where the real motivators of behavior or the real psychology underlying people's choices are so complicated, the simplistic inferences we make about people's minds are really the the most common source of error. Mm. Do you know the five whys? Um, Have you so heard that in framework? psychology, we, we sometimes will do that even, even more. We'll ask people, <laughs> uh, there's one uh, where you ask people 21 whys. But, wow. Um, Tell me what the five. Well, I just, are. I just, I mean, of course, you already know it, and you've intuited it, and you've gone deeper than it. But I think it was made popular by uh, Toyota, um, maybe one of the founders of Toyota Motors, and it was a manufacturing process that they would just start asking, you know, why, why? if something went why wrong, why that, why, why is there a defect, and then there's always a second why, then a third, fourth, and fifth, and the idea is, you've finally gotten to. Uh, enough of a truth that you need as a line manager or somebody observing the manufacturing process to now figure out what the real problem is. But it's not the answer that comes from the first why or the mm. second or third. And so I was just thinking about that work connecting with what you just said. Mm-hmm. That's uh, something that will get people down to sort of more core or fundamental beliefs than what they would respond to uh, initially. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. So, let's talk a little bit about money and investing, because that's what we usually talk about on this <laughs> podcast, and so I, I feel personally obligated to go there a little bit. Okay. N- Nick, for the, fun of it, for the fun of it, are you an investor? Uh, I am, yes. Very passive. Okay. Wonderful. And it, do you find that your own work has influenced your choices that you've made with your money over the years, for better or for worse? So... I would say it has made me exceptionally uh, humble and also pay attention, at least from my perspective, to the to the data, which uh, suggests that I'm not I'm going to be terrible at this. 
just like I am at reading minds. And so probably the best I can do is to put it into some big managed index fund and let it sit there. Mm. So that's what I do. Okay, good. And uh, I know you, you mentioned to me off the air that um, while you're not um, focused directly on money or investing in much of your work, you do often find yourself speaking to financial advisors. I'm not a financial advisor myself. I certainly have some friends who are, and I know we have some listening to this podcast. What would you typically be saying to financial advisors? So I would um, give them sort of the basic lessons of uh, of the book and of our of our research. So lots of people um, are in the relationship business, as we were talking before we got on the phone. You suggested that we're all in the relationship business, which mm-hmm. I think is very much true. But financial advisors, of course, are often in the business of sitting across the table from somebody and trying to figure out <clears throat> what their goals and aspirations and ideals are, what their fears and concerns are, trying to navigate them through uh, complicated retirement plans or you know whatever it is that they're trying to advise them on. And that requires being able to understand another person, but also being able to communicate your own thoughts and beliefs very clearly. And so lots of the same things that trip us up when we're talking with a spouse or talking with our kids or a coworker or a boss also are relevant to advisors when they're talking to their clients. Mm. And thinking, too, of, of business people and common perceptions around business, because that's also highly relevant to Rule Breaker Investing, lots of professionals, and not just about business, this is any organization. Because my question, I know you can speak to this, kind of about motivations and how we tend to view our own and those of others. So, a typical workplace scenario might be um, a, a manager or leader thinking that what truly motivates him or her is purpose, a very purpose-driven individual, but would tend to view the others that are reporting to him or her as motivated by their money, salaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this is a very common phenomenon. We can find this in so many different ways in people's uh, intuitions about what motivates themselves and others. And psychologists, um, psychologists generally speak about um, two broad classes of, of motivations. They don't always bra- break down so cleanly into these two, but for purposes of discussion, we can refer to them in these two ways. One class of motivators are, are extrinsic motivations, typically money. So, an extrinsic motivator is a motivator that doesn't come from the task you're doing itself, but comes from some outside source. So, you know, I would ask you to work for the day and we'll give you money in exchange. You're not working because you love it. You're working because you're going to get paid money. Or if you offer your children chocolate to, uh, to if they get a good grade on their, on their homework, that's an extrinsic motivator. It's not coming from the homework itself. It's a motivation that's coming from some extrinsic source, in this case, chocolate. Mm-hmm. The other set of motivators are intrinsic motivators things like meaning and purpose or fun, right? So, if you just enjoy something or if you find something to be valuable and worthwhile, um, if you take satisfaction out of learning new skills or, or developing some aspect uh, of, of yourself, those are all intrinsic motivators that come from the task itself, not from some outside source. And if you look at what really drives human behavior, psychologists find that the intrinsic motivators um, are in many ways more powerful. They tend ultimately to be more satisfying when you 
are motivated by, intrinsically, and they tend to be longer lasting than extrinsic incentives. They also don't, uh, you don't adapt to them. If, you're, if you really love something, you will love it for a long time. Money you tend to adapt to somewhat, uh, somewhat quickly. Um, now, there's an interesting difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivators, and that is I can see, I can observe you working for an extrinsic source of motivation <laughs> easier than I can observe you working for an intrinsic one. But notice for yourself, you can see yourself working for money. You can recognize yourself doing that. But you can also feel the intrinsic motivation. You know what it's like to feel pride. You know what it's like to feel excited about something. You know what it's like to feel uh, you know, you're doing something really valuable or meaningful. You can tell when you're motivated by an intrinsic motive in a way you can't for others. And so what that means is that people tend to think that their intrinsic motivations are actually stronger than other, people, uh, other people's motives. And that can create a real problem in organizations, um, I think, because we don't necessarily know what's actually motivating other people. We focus a lot on money. Nearly all motivators in many organizations these days are focused around extrinsic incentives on, on money, when in fact what people often are willing to work the hardest for are intrinsic sources of motivation. Mm, you bet. Making a job more meaningful and rewarding, um, giving people more autonomy, more choice. Um, you know, it's what feels related to this, it's not exactly the same point, but it's one of those good old-fashioned bits of wisdom that I picked up over the years that I still believe, so disabuse me of this if I have it wrong, but it feels related, Nick. I've often said or observed that you know we tend to judge ourselves by our own intentions and others by their results. So, when we yeah. fail, we're like, well, but I was trying to... But when somebody else fails, we're like, you blew it. Yeah. David, you should have been a psychologist. <laughs> you really should have. So, a uh, very dear friend of mine, uh, Justin Kruger, who's at NYU, and my PhD advisor, Tom Gilovich, published a paper that shows exactly that, essentially, uh, in 2004. That is, people tend to evaluate themselves uh, based on their intentions, but evaluate others in terms of their actions, exactly as you just said. So, for instance, people will um, give themselves credit for planning to throw a birthday party. But they will only give other people credit <laughs> if they actually throw the birthday party. So if you're rating, for instance, how conscientious you are, you'll give yourself credit for conscientious plans that you made, but you only give other people credit for conscientious actions that you observe. And given that unfair playing field between how we evaluate ourselves and others, it's really no surprise that people tend to think that they're better than others in lots of different ways. It makes me but, wonder how much better we can be, and I think this is part of the point of your work, Nick, is what if we reverse that? What if we very consciously spent tomorrow, uh, this podcast comes out on Wednesday, May 10th, so let's just say we make Thursday, May 11th, for all of us, subversion day, reversal day, and we intentionally go about the whole day attempting to judge ourselves by our results and others by their intentions. So I think we could do one of those. The other one would be super hard. So I we don't think know their intentions. I think we could do a better job of judging ourselves by our actions, because we can observe what we actually do, and we can observe what others do. 
judging other people by their intentions is dicey territory. But what you say in the book, and this is the way to do it, right, would be to make sure that we're asking them. That's correct. Getting so in, connect. To, to the extent connecting. that you actually have access to others' intentions and you ask them what they were planning to do, what they were intending to do, what they meant by the statement, then you're absolutely right. We can do that. Uh, but without taking that extra step, we're guessing on others' yeah. intentions. Well, That's I learned that from you in your book, so I yeah. knew the right answer. But it's true. It's great. I love it. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Harry's. Now, you may remember, Harry's did a wonderful promotion with us last year. I got my free Harry's kit then. I appreciate it, as I still do, because I still have Harry's. The quality of the razor and blades. Not blades that give out that quickly, I'm happy to say. Well, Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, they're giving you this new trial set for free. And I have to say, I think this is a pretty good deal, because all you do, literally, is pay the $3 of shipping. So, you cover the $3 of shipping, and your free trial set is going to include a weighted ergonomic razor handle, the aforementioned, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. So, yeah, I'm going to agree with them. Stop messing around. Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer. That's a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping to get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash fool right now. That's harrys.com slash fool. Father's Day is coming up. Broadening the lens beyond business, just for a sec, Nick, what's been, for you, the biggest change in your day-to-day life because of your research? I guess, put another way, what's one concrete action our listeners can take to bump up their game? Yeah, so, I think the most, um, the most problematic aspect, or unfortunate aspect, of misunderstanding the minds of others is needless conflict. These are cases where we assume we understand somebody uh, better than we actually do. When we get into a situation where we have some conflict, instead of really trying to understand how another person is thinking, we impute to them all kinds of nasty beliefs or attitudes or motives or intentions that they may not actually have. Most people are trying to live their lives in a way that they believe is right and good and appropriate and reasonable. And so when we find somebody in our lives who we just think is irrational, stupid, hostile, illogical, it's probably the case that we're wrong. So one of the biggest things that I think I've tried to try to do at least in my life, and I, this is not, I mean, I, I would say being a psychologist has changed the way I live in lots and lots of different uh, I ways. Bet. I wasn't, I would not say I'm prone to being a particularly good person, but I think research has made, helped me to be a little better. Um, and, and cases of conflict are one case where this is very clearly true. So, the end of the book, I describe a simple approach that you can take to actually try to understand people better. It's a standard sort of empathic listening technique or, or, or procedure called the speaker-listener technique, where if you really want to understand how somebody is thinking about a problem uh, or an issue or know what their beliefs are, you need to ask them to report on it directly, explicitly. You then need to listen to what they have to say, 
until they are done, and then restate what the person just said to them, to you, back to them. So what I heard you say was this, and allow them to confirm or disconfirm. If you, if you missed something, then they can correct that. Um, and I approach a lot of difficult interactions that way in a way I never would have before. Hmm. I just was um, not all that long ago in a really quite personally painful um, conflict with a with a colleague of mine who I respect a great deal. And um, we we'd had sort of an unfortunate incident happen, and I and and he was he was very angry with me, and I felt that he was just really misunderstanding what my motives were, what I was trying to do in the situation that had an outcome that I wasn't happy about. And I also recognized that he seemed just so crazy. I couldn't possibly be understanding how he was thinking correctly. I just couldn't possibly be. And given what I know about the data, that's, that's what made me convinced that that was probably right. And so um, I invited him to, to lunch. He couldn't make it for lunch, but, uh, but we got together for coffee. And I essentially went through the speaker listener technique mm. with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a couple pages uh, of notes describing his thoughts to me. And, um, and going through this, it was painful. It can be painful to hear somebody, um, you know, say things that aren't, aren't nice about you, but it was also super helpful to understand how your own behavior can be perceived in the eyes of another person. And then to take the opportunity to actually reach some consensual understanding. Ah, I see how you could have seen my behavior this way. Mm -hmm. This is what I intended. Uh, This is what I was actually thinking. Um, And, you know, what comes out of that is not not always a wonderful kumbaya moment, although it worked out very well in this case, but you certainly can through that achieve a lot of Mm. a lot of understanding. And it takes really the sharp edge off of a lot of conflict. So mm. I would say that's one really big thing. That's a great example. Uh, that I do differently. So we need to start wrapping up, give you back to your day. I do want to just make sure I underline a joke that you tell about midway through the book, which um, we, we all thought was great as we looked it over. Uh, so the section is entitled Getting Over Yourself, which is in part what we've been talking about in our time together today. And it includes this beauty of a joke. So, a man on a side of a river shouts to a man standing on the other side, Hey, how do I get to the other side of the river? And the other man responds, You are on the other side of the river. Love it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Pretty succinct. It makes the point awfully well. Yeah, good example of egocentrism. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, to close, you know, it's funny. I think a lot about, of course, I think a lot about the stock market and how we tell ourselves stories about stocks. We tell, we make stocks into stories. We say things, and I've done this, and sometimes it actually works. It's not always bad, but I'll say things like, "Well, Mercado Libre, with its positioning within Latin America, looks like the e-commerce giant that Amazon has been. Therefore." Mercado Libre is, in some senses, a mini Amazon or the next Amazon. I'm going to buy some shares of Mercado Libre. In that case, it's worked out okay. But whether or not it works out or not, the point is, I'm kind of telling myself a story and other people a story about how I see pattern recognition, whether it's right or wrong. But we also talk to our stocks. We think our stocks know where they bought them. 
I don't know if you found this or if you've had this experience, but you know, we, we want to just get back to even as if the stock remembers or the stock market remembers where we personally bought that stock that day. <laughs> There's a lot of talking to the stars that goes on, um, talking to an inanimate object and thinking that it actually cares, knows, or or listens. Mm-hmm. That's an example of anthropomorphism. And there is actually some interesting work about how stock market analysts describe the market in anthropomorphic terms as having intentions and emotions and goals, and how that kind of language is then related to their investing behavior. Um, Now, in that case, it's almost surely, at least in a specific way, an error, but it's not necessarily clear that the investment choices that they make are always an error. That's more common. I sure hope not. <laughs> you sure hope not, right? As a frequent anthropomorphizer, I'd say you've done pretty well. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Well, I hope you had half as much fun as I did learning from Nick and maybe changing how I act. Yeah, sure, tomorrow, May 11th. Maybe that's subversion day, or maybe just how I think in future. And as I hasten to add what we're going to be doing next week, I realize right now that I don't exactly know what we'll do next week. So, my intention, judging myself by my intention, I know that I intended to come up with something good to say right now, but you're likely to judge me by the results that I don't actually have something to tell you about next week's show right now. For that, I apologize. I can assure you this, though, We'll be doing our best to stay foolish. Until then, keep breaking the rules, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.